Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Um, welcome, everyone. My name is Megan McKenzie, and I'm a professor of gender and war here in the Department of Government and International Relations. I want to start the evening with an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge that this meeting is being held on Aboriginal land, land that wasn't sold or ceded. The University of Sydney is built on the ancestral lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the first Australians as the traditional custodians of the continent, whose cultures are among the oldest living cultures in human history. I pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and I also want to extend a special welcome to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who might be here today. So before we begin, some thanks are necessary. Um, I'd like to thank Sydney Ideas for their support in organizing this event, um, as well as our co-hosts, uh, the Centre for International Security Studies. Uh, thank you to the Faculty of Arts and the University of Sydney for the funding that made this event possible. Thank you to the research assistants who have helped um, on this project so far. Research assistants are often the unsung heroes of every academic event, um, and they make these events possible. So Etta Gnaiden, Jackie Dent, Caroline Yarnell, and Marilyn Concorger. Thank you especially to our panelists and moderator for coming across the world, uh, interstate, and across the city to be here this evening. I'll introduce them in a minute. To start off with, I want to note that uh, this is a sensitive topic. While this panel is focused on military suicide, suicide more generally is an issue that affects many of us deeply. I want to acknowledge that it's possible that some of us in this room have been directly impacted by suicide. I know I have. On the last slide, we'll be sharing some information uh, about resources that are available if you or anyone you know needs them. And while we acknowledge the personal nature of this uh, topic and the very real and broad impacts of military suicide, this evening is primarily focused on the research. I brought together uh, a strong research perspective uh, with a diverse range of scholars and a frontline worker with the goal of informing policy and addressing ways to support service members uh, and veterans. I also want to note that we've been advised by uh, mental health professionals and advocates to try and move away from using the term committing suicide to death by suicide or um, completed suicide. So if you hear that language, and we'll work hard to, to do that, I think hearing the words committed suicide is a bit common, so we might not always get it right, but we're working to, to make that shift, and we encourage you to think about that as well. So this talk is funded by the Multidisciplinary Arts and Social Sciences Inaugural Fellowship, and I was a recipient last year. The goal of this fellowship is to promote interdisciplinary collaboration between scholars within the Faculty of Arts and one of the multidisciplinary initiatives. So one of my first goals with this fellowship was to initiate an interdisciplinary conversation about this issue, bringing together scholars from different fields of study. Tonight, we're doing just that. I brought together experts in clinical psychology, medical anthropology, sociology, and media together to share their expertise on, the, their important on this important issue. So um, in terms of format, I'm going to introduce the speakers. I will start the evening by talking a little bit about my own research. Each of the panelists will speak for a few minutes. There'll be a moderated discussion, followed by um, opening up to the audience for a question and answer. So uh, first on my right is Ben Wadham. Ben's a sociologist and criminologist from, from Flinders University, and also served in the Australian Regular Army. Uh, one of the reasons I was really excited to bring him here, he does fantastic work on military culture, and he also has this, this great perspective as someone who's served in the, in, the, in the Army and also has studied the military for a number of years. Next, we have Kenneth McLeish, who is an assistant professor of medicine, health, and society and anthropology at Vanderbilt University. He's a cultural anthropologist. Um, his book, Making War at Fort Hood, Life and Uncertainty in a Military Community was one of the most exciting books I've read in the last five years. 
Um, his work do, in terms of doing ethnographic study with military communities really, I think, re-examines the, the way that war impacts the everyday lives of service members, families, and communities. Next, we have Shane Greentree, who's a clinical psychologist and the National Psychology Services Director at Soldier On. To me, it was really important to have a clinical psychologist here, but it's even more important that I have somebody who works directly with service members and veterans. So I'm very grateful that Shane's here. Our moderator, Jackie, Jackie Dent, is a widely published journalist, international communications specialist, and PhD student. Uh, it's wonderful she, that she can moderate this event, not only because of her media experience, but also because of her experience working in war zones, including Afghanistan. So welcome again to this uh, Sydney Ideas event uh, entitled, Why Are Soldiers Taking Their Own Lives? As I said earlier, I'm a professor of gender and war here at the University of Sydney. I aspire to do research that will reduce and end wars. I do this by asking different questions about war and its long-term aftermath. I'm especially curious about gender and war and the potentially different ways that men and women experience, participate in, and resist war. So before getting into some of the current research, it's worth, worth noting the rather unique history of military suicide. In 1949, a clinical psychologist named Edwin Schneidem was working at a veteran's hospital in Los Angeles. A young veteran had killed himself, and his suicide note was at the coroner's office. While there, Schneidem came across hundreds of other notes. His analysis of those notes and subsequent career in suicide has led him to be seen as the father of what is now known as modern suicidology. So this tells us that the study of military suicide has a short history. What we do know is that there has been increased uh, attention to military suicide and a growing body of organizations working with service members and veterans to help address this issue. So although there's been increased attention uh, in many domestic contexts, there are very few international comparative studies of military suicide. And I think that's a problem. As a scholar of international relations, I think we need to have a sense of the rates of military suicide around the world, or at least across a, a strong case selection of, of countries. We need to understand trends over time and the variation in how particular countries address military suicide. Without this type of data, it's difficult to identify any particular countries that are getting it right and have managed to reduce military suicide. Uh, places where suicide is relatively low, or how Australia's rates of suicide compare to other similar-sized uh, militaries. So I've been working with researchers to, tr to try and create the first-ever international database on military suicides. This would include the rates as well as policy responses from countries around the world. And what we found almost immediately is that there are several gaps in the data that's available, as well as obstacles to doing this kind of work. But these gaps or these obstacles are actually politically interesting in and of themselves and worth noting. So one of the first challenges is that actually the way that different countries define military suicide vary greatly. So some countries use the, WA, the World Health Organization definition, but most countries have their own definition. Some national governments also have different definitions of military suicide compared, or of suicide compared to their militaries. Some militaries have different definitions amongst the services. So the Army, Navy, um, and Air Force might have different definitions, which makes it very difficult to do cross-national comparisons. A second challenge is that there are a number of countries that don't collect and publish regular data on military suicide. There's also a gender component to the data collection. Because most national militaries have a minority number of women, some either don't publish the rates of female service members suicide at all, in which case you can't compare the rates of one country which includes men and women versus another country which only includes men. It also means we don't have great dat data on how women are doing within militaries. And that's a significant problem because we have lots of evidence to suggest that women might be particularly vulnerable to suicide. They're overrepresented in suicide attempts in Australia and other countries. 
Um, and there's data within the United States to show that they're 250% more likely to commit suicide in that country. So despite these challenges, we've managed to collect some data, and the results, I think, are significant. So a snapshot of what we do know, uh, just this last previous year, 2017, more Australian military personnel and veterans took their lives than were killed in Afghanistan during 13 years of war. In Canada, members of the army are 50% more likely to kill themselves as compared to civilian Canadians. In the US, military suicide is often talked about as an epidemic. Suicide rates for service members have risen dramatically since 2001 and doubled in 2012. Research in Australia and the US has also shown that male veterans are nearly twice as likely to commit suicide than their, to suicide than their civilian counterparts. Again, there's little data about female uh, veterans in Australia, but we do know that they have some particular vulnerabilities. So it's just a couple of uh, visuals to help you see where Australia sits within the global context or some of its uh, closest allies. You can see the dark blue is male military suicide rate, and you can see that um, the male suicide rate is actually lower than the general population, which is the light blue. So historically, being in the military has been a protective factor for suicide. What's kind of perplexing to researchers is why veterans have such high rates of suicide. So here you have some data on the US to show how actually both in military populations as well as civilian populations, you have a dramatic increase in suicide rates overall, over a long period of time. So here's the, the increased rates in suicide. And this final one, I think, captures what I see as one of the most um, challenging um, pieces of data to show the baseline rates for Australia and US in terms of suicide rates in the general population. And then you see in the green is veteran suicide rates um, between 18, 18 years of age and 29, and orange is Australia, which is a, quite a significant in increase over a period of time. So another goal of this research was really to explore what I've seen as the vast gap between the rhetoric on military suicide and what we know from available research. In short, the stories we tell about military suicide are often, based, are often not based on fact. In particular, one of the most dominant stories told about military suicide is that soldiers are at an increased risk of death by suicide if they've been exposed to trauma while serving in combat operations. The consistent narrative is that when healthy soldiers deploy to combat zones, they experience trauma and are vulnerable to PTSD and are more likely to die by suicide as a result. So to be sure, there are certainly combat soldiers who may have that experience, be deployed, experience trauma, and are, at increased, increased, or, uh, are vulnerable. Um, however, research shows that this dominant combat narrative doesn't capture the complete picture when it comes to military suicide. The, com the presumed connection between combat, PTSD, and military suicide is understandable, um, given that uh, combat roles have historically been understood as some of the most dangerous, violent, and important military jobs. Media coverage of military suicide often reinforces this link. We did a, a media analysis of the past two years of media coverage around military suicide, and nearly half of the articles mention combat. So although military suicide is consistently associated with combat exposure, this link isn't supported by available research. So research shows no strong link between serving in combat operations and increased vulnerability to military suicide. In fact, available medical data indicates that service members who have never even deployed, let alone experienced combat, may be among the most vulnerable. So again, that doesn't mean that service members who have served in combat aren't vulnerable. What it means is that they're, they're not the only or the most vulnerable community. A study that followed Australian Vietnam veterans over 20 years found no significant increase in the, in the service members who deployed versus those who stayed home. Perhaps most fascinating about that study is that the children of both sets of service members were three times more likely to commit suicide. So this research tells us that the issue of military suicide is complex. 
and can't simply be explained only as a product of combat exposure. Medical research also complicates this common link between PTSD and military suicide. Several researchers have found that, that individuals, that service members who have PTSD may actually be less likely to uh, suicide. This may be because they have um, sought diagnosis or have a care plan. So this research, I think, goes against some of our most deeply held assumptions about war and suicide. It also goes against common popular cultural depictions, depictions of war, where it's the combat soldiers who are most likely to be harmed, both physically and mentally. I think exploring the complexity around military suicide matters because responses to military suicide should be based on facts, not misrepresentations or stereotypes. The misperception that military suicide stems from combat exposure could lead to ineffective policy responses and less attention and resources to service members who haven't experienced combat. For example, several studies indicate that it's young men who have never deployed and have recently left the service who are most at risk. Other factors include addictions, pre-existing mental health issues, social isolation, and access to firearms. So what accounts for this vast gap between the rhetoric and the available data? I think there are two explanations. First, um, linking military suicide to combat exposure draws on our, our common perceptions of, co of combat that I spoke about earlier. So even though warfare has changed dramatically over the past few decades, we often still treat combat roles as the most dangerous and exposed. But wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been counterinsurgency wars that don't have clear front lines. That means that service members who may be in support roles, including medics, uh, could be just as likely to be exposed to violence. It may seem more natural for the public to accept that service members' experiences in war overseas, sort of out there, is their greatest risk factor for suicide, instead of facing the possibility that there may be something about serving in general or serving here at home that makes soldiers more vulnerable. It may also be more comfortable than facing research that points to a range of complex issues that might contribute to military suicide. So I think what's required is a shift in our thinking about military suicide. I think we need to bring military suicide home, uh, if you will. This shift can, can, in thinking can produce different responses to military suicide. So instead of considering military suicide as an inevitable byproduct of combat exposure, uh, we might focus on the impacts of military service on service members themselves, look at internal military culture, and re-examine the resources and support service members are given when they leave their jobs. The second reason for this gap is I think this complexity requires collaboration and partnership and information sharing between scholars working in different fields of study, including medicine, anthropology, military studies, politics and international relations, and clinical psychology, to name a few. Historically, there has not always been effective collaboration and conversation between these fields of study. I think this kind of collaboration can help us find better answers to complex questions and to understand surprising and confronting research findings. And that's what we're here to do today, to generate an interdisciplinary conversation. When I imagined this event, I couldn't think of, m this is exactly my dream panel who I was hoping to have here, so I'm so thrilled to um, pass on to our next speaker, Ben Wadham. Hello, everybody. Um, thanks, Megan. Um, it's an exciting event to be talking at, and um, it's always exciting to talk about your own research. Uh, a little bit about me. I. Um, as Megan said, I did serve in the Australian Defence Force uh, a few decades ago, five years of service, uh, Royal Australian Infantry, and um, then I was a military investigator. Um, and it's through being a military investigator that I've probably developed some of the interests now that I research. Um, my research focuses on military culture. So some of those things that Megan talked about there, I'm going to be thinking, I'm going to be talking about military suicide, um, not in terms of the combatant, but in terms of the way the military system works, the way in which, say, the Department of Veterans Affairs deals with veterans or the way the Department of Defence uh, deals with soldiers that um, their mental health or um, also when they're leaving. So 
it's more of an internal type of uh, analysis. Um, as a sociologist or criminologist, I'm interested in systems. Uh, I'm interested in a lot of other things too, but in this, the case of what I'm going to talk about today, I'm interested in the systems in which uh, defence people find themselves, in which veterans find themselves. Um, there's a lot of work going on in that area at the moment. Um, the ADF, uh, over the last uh, probably six or seven years, has um, been involved in uh, around about ten inquiries, uh, looking at uh, veteran transition, looking at institutional abuse in the Australian Defence Force, uh, looking at veteran legislation um, and a range of other things uh, in terms of um, transition as well. So they're the two kind of issues I'm going to be talking about. As I said, they're sort of internal system issues. And one is uh, uh, how um, uh, the question of transition uh, can lead or uh, um, sit behind military suicide, but also the issue of institutional abuse. So. Um, <coughs> to start off with, uh, I want to go back to actually saying that uh, the question of transition uh, is a massive challenge for, uh, I think, for all veterans. Uh, it's a uh, highly transformative sort of uh, process to go from being a civilian to becoming a soldier. When we join the military, we become militarised. And that's a profound change in, in, to one's way of being in the world, to uh, our reasons for getting up, in the morning, our dispositions to others and our sense of who we are. For many young Australians, it is the pinnacle of uh, their life so far to, to join and serve in the Australian military. So when it comes uh, time for, a, uh, for military personnel, veterans to separate from the military, uh, this is also a massively uh, profound change. And I can say that uh, several decades on, I feel like I'm still transitioning. Um, I don't know what that's like for every veteran, but certainly um, it's... Uh, well, I guess being part of the veteran community, you know, there's still a, long, a, a strong sense of identity and belonging there. So military personnel are made from the raw material, uh, raw material of the civilian. So when one becomes a soldier, one can never erase that experience. You can't go back to being a civilian. Um, veteran transition has to be understood in the, from the point where one is trained to become part of the military, not always at the back end of leaving the military. I want to explain that process of, of change because it is so profound. So I'll draw on military historian Darren Moore. And Darren Moore says that as part of this initial basic training that every military person goes through, uh, the objective is to purge the recruit's civil identity, uh, including any preconceptions he or she may hold about his or her rights and personal freedoms and supplant the civilian value system with that of the military. This is accomplished, accomplished by various methods, including denigrating those outside the military system and at the same time stressing the virtues of the military community. It is in effect a transformational approach where the recruit self-actualises the desire to become part of the military. Other approaches are more individualised, relying on humiliation and brutality to break an individual's self-esteem, lower their resistance to the values and attitudes that the military wants them to adopt and reinforce the omnipotent nature of military discipline. Becoming military involves a separation of the recruit from their past. Okay, so uh, we leave our uh, civilian surroundings to uh, go to our basic training, wherever that is, and whether we're a commissioned or non-commissioned officer, uh, there's a separation that happens and a substitution. We move from uh, the family and friends and community as our initial identity to the military family. And, you know, that's a massive uh, thing that you'll hear many veterans talk about, the camaraderie, the mateship the belonging. And it's something which uh, is uh, intense when you leave the military and you leave that behind. So transitioning is much more than just a psychological state or process. It's a cultural practice and a social phenomenon. It's one of the key points I want to leave you with is that uh, it's not just an individual matter. It is cultural. It is systemic. It is about how the state and the military and civil society conceives of veterans, how our society thinks about uh, military personnel and how veterans see themselves among those forces and how they learn to navigate those new roles and obligations. And while many make a smooth transition out of the military, uh, many don't. They go on to experience difficulties in employment and education, health, social problems and relationship issues. Now according to the um, Constant Battle Report, around 118 veterans have committed suicide since September 2016. And kind of relating to Megan's uh, discussion about data, 
The inquiry acknowledges that this may not reflect the exact number of suicides due to limited data. In fact, um, the uh, numbers that the veteran community suggests uh, in terms of PTSD and mental health issues uh, seems to be larger than the state want to recognise. So let me just um, tell you an example of how uh, the uh, question of transition and having to negotiate a new complex system can have an effect upon a veteran. I'll tell you the story of Jesse Bird, who served in the ADF from 2007 to 2010. He was deployed to Afghanistan on several occasions. On return from deployment, Jesse struggled with his experiences and sought help from the DVA. Early in 2017, his mother and father submitted to the Senate inquiry, the constant battle, into suicide by veterans and they explain his situation. He's been endeavouring to seek assistance from DBA for the last 18 months without success. It seems to him and us that the level of bureaucracy is intentionally obstructionist and unedifying. The jungle of paperwork, the lack of follow-up and the non-existent support has contributed to his deteriorating mental health. He is involved with VBCS, he's undergoing programs. Jesse has not received any money whatsoever from DBA or Centrelink to help him survive and without our financial and emotional help, he would be on the street or worse. Jesse took his life during the inquiry in 2017 and his father commented at the time, the department is charged with the responsibility to care and support our veteran community and, this, and that is what the Australian community expects to happen, not the current delay, deny, destroy. So it's a story of a young man who joined the ADF as a profession, who loved his job but struggled with the consequences his story is one of the soldier and the state and how after signing on the dotted line and volunteering to make the ultimate sacrifice, he was denied welfare, recognition and support for the consequences of his service. So submissions to the constant battle, that particular inquiry I'm talking about, outlined mental health issues, PTSD, homelessness, poverty, unemployment, poor job security, family violence, social isolation, perceived maladministration in the military justice system substance abuse and experience of sexual assault and bullying, and bullying as key issues experienced by veterans. It's quite a list. These submissions also outline significant frustration with the state-governed veteran sector, arguing that excessive bureaucracy, institutional denial and malfeasance sometimes characterised uh, dealing with DBA. So that's a discussion about a complex system which veterans have to negotiate when they leave the military and uh, one which can generate great confusion and um, feel like a complete lack of support. Now the other issue I said I talk about is abuse which has been a significant issue in the Australian Defence Force uh, particularly since 2011, it has a much longer history but uh, the first review there, the DLA Piper review into sexual, physical and other abuse in the ADF was released in about 2012. Um, since then, around 3,000 cases have come to light, but we accept that that's probably the tip of the iceberg. So let me just cover a couple of cases to show you, to talk about um, the suicide of uh, some young private soldiers uh, in the Australian Defence Force. Um, this is not representative, but it just is, shows an example of the way in which defence culture can um, work to undermine the security and safety of its people. Private Jeremy Williams was a high flyer. He loved the army. He excelled at Kapuka and was committed to the infantry. It was everything to him. And during training, Jeremy suffered shin splints, which isn't an uncommon uh, complaint uh, when you're walking log large dis distances with heavy packs, water and weapons. Jeremy was replaced in recuperation and discharge platoon. Leading up to his death, there had been numerous inquiries and reports into uh, the School of Infantry and bullying and harassment. It was the Birchett report and the investigation into the abusive treatment of another private, Private Amos, at the School of Infantry. It was still fresh. Allegations were raised in early 2003 that recuperation and discharge platoon soldiers at Singleton were being subjected to abuse, denigration, harassment, bullying, including threats of physical violence by staff and other uh, trainees. Plus the absence of efficient and effective support services or mechanisms where the soldiers could uh, report the abuse or complain. Jeremy told his family how he was made to feel worthless, useless, useless, scum and shameful because he was injured and had been transferred to R&D platoon. Now, this is an inquiry about a particular set of practices around the early 2000s. 
I can say that uh, certainly I experienced that uh, 10 or 15 years earlier uh, in the same place. So uh, it seems to me to be part of an ongoing uh, culture in the, in, in the military, one which is admittedly being looked at over the last sort of uh, 10 years or so. The executive summary, uh, just moving to wind up, uh, explained this. Explained that he found a widespread use of negative reinforcement to motivate recruits under training. This includes disparaging and negative comments about these platoons. Okay, so in my day, these was called the sick, lame and lazy platoons. Um, there is also a perception that many of those in those platoons are weak, and as a consequence, all members of the platoon are subjected to widespread denigration. On April 14, 2003, gunner John Satardis also committed suicide at A Battery 4 Field Regiment Holsworthy. He too had recently completed his IET training. He too had been injured during that period and in the uh, sick, lame and lazy platoon. So these are just a couple of cases, but uh, abuse in defence is a long-standing issue and it affects all military personnel from recruits all the way up to uh, even two-star generals. Uh, I'm currently the uh, lead investigator on a national study into institutional abuse funded by the Australian Research Council. Um, the uh, effect of institutional abuse uh, has profound effects upon people and um, does culminate in suicide. So just finishing off, um, as a nation and a government, we spend much time and resources preparing and training young military personnel, but we don't spend the same effort and dedication when they leave. The series of government inquiries is hopefully working towards better responses, um, but victims of abuse uh, have also been heard through various inquiries, the DLA Piper Review. I guess the point for me is that military culture, because of the closed nature of the institution and the close working relationships of personnel, within a hierarchical command and uh, control system, harbours great potential for abuse. The government and the military are working towards better systems of assessment, yet the tendency remains to see veteran suicide as an individual response. Veteran suicide is not just an individual response, it's also a cultural dilemma. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. I also would like to uh, convey my thanks to Megan McKenzie and to University of Sydney and Sydney Ideas. Uh, it's a tremendous uh, pleasure and privilege to get to be here and be part of this conversation this evening. Um, so like Megan uh, mentioned a moment ago, uh, my name is Ken McLeish. I'm a cultural anthropologist and my research looks at the ways uh, that people make meaning out of war experience. Uh, I look at the ways that uh, lives are shaped by military institutions and what values and assumptions are wrapped up in those relationships. Um, this is something that, uh, especially coming from the US, is especially important to me uh, because of the ways that in the US, the military is a uniquely trusted and valorized institution, but it's one that most of the American population does not have any uh, direct association with um, in the, the number of decades since the US switched to an all-volunteer force. Uh, and uh, and, and as, a, as a country, our familiarity and association with the military is chiefly through stereotype and imagery in popular media. And it's really important to me in my work that the people in whose name war is done, whether it's in the US or, uh, or Australia or elsewhere in the world, um, that the people in whose name war is done have as complete as possible of an understanding of what war actually consists of so that it's possible to have an ethical and responsible relationship to it and its effects. And, uh, uh, and it's also something that's important to me um, in terms of helping Americans understand the distinctiveness of our uniquely militarized country in the US uh, and to help make sense of the outsized role that the US plays in global war making. Now, as an anthropologist, uh, and very much, but also very much in keeping with the two folks who spoke uh, before me, um, it's my professional position that the stories that we tell about war matter profoundly, uh, in, and in some ways, uh, specifically because of that disconnect, because stories are part of how we as a, as a society know war. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say that those narratives and those stories are a fundamental part of what war is, uh, that are kind of grafted onto the actual activities of making and producing it. Um, 
And uh, my point, my main point this evening, and my my remarks now is simply uh, is simply that uh, the the profound importance of stories. That m when it comes to military suicide, uh, when it comes to the act itself, when it comes to the things that we say about it, uh, and when it comes to the ways that institutions respond to it, uh, that all of these things direct our attention to some aspects of war, but also distract our attention from other aspects of it. And this is, this is the way in which uh, stories matter uh, so, uh, so significantly, so profoundly. So uh, this is a position that I've come to through uh, over 10 years of conducting research on a number of war-related topics, looking at the language of uh, military policy and discourse on war-related mental illness, looking at representations of war and the military and veterans in US uh, popular culture, but also, and most importantly to me, um, spending a lot of time uh, conducting ethnographic research and getting to know uh, war veterans, soldiers and other service members, military families, military care providers, and, uh, uh, and advocates and uh, uh, caretakers and clinicians. Um, and across this, uh, this work, and especially in the ethnographic component, in the, the time that I spend with veterans and military families, talk about and experience of suicide is ubiquitous. Um, for instance, uh, during the research that I conducted at the US Army's Fort Hood in Central Texas, one of the biggest military installations in the world, um, and I was there during the height of the US war in Iraq in 2007 and 2008, uh, and this was incidentally a time when the, the US military suicide rate was climbing, but was still, it was still lower than the civilian suicide rate. Uh, it had not yet reached the, um, the rather uh, dramatic and concerning heights that, uh, that Megan McKenzie alluded to a moment ago. Um, but that even, even in this context, uh, the base averaged uh, about two suicides per month. And, uh, and nearly everybody I knew and spent time with um, knew people who had, um, uh, who had struggled with self-harm, who had taken their own lives, um, uh, or who had in other ways been affected by suicide. Um, in the research I've been conducting more recently with um, recently transitioning post 9-11 veterans across the US Southeast, suicide experiences, worries about people harming themselves, and uh, statistical uh, ideas about the prevalence of sui su excuse me, suicide are likewise things that are perpetually invoked um, in a number of different uh, settings um, uh, oriented toward providing care for recent and transitioning veterans that that, that research has taken me to. And the thing that I want to share about these stories is that in the way that people talk about, uh, about this phenomenon in these settings, in, in everyday life, in military and veteran communities, the death itself, the suicides themselves, matter tremendously in their own right. But they also are incredibly important to people in the way these stories are told because of the way that they point to so many other problems that come from the routine functions of military institutions and American war making. Um, and this includes things like long and repeated deployments. So for folks in the US Army, these are deployments of, uh, uh, of 12 to 15 months, um, often with as little as 12 months uh, spent at home between deployments. Uh, it includes things like the military's uh, tremendous reach into uh, just the, um, without even getting into the question of abuse, uh, just um, soldiers' everyday lives and conduct and kind of control over their own bodies and well-being. Um, and it includes, of course, the, uh, uh, the toll that deployments take on family and intimate relationships um, and on the perceived indifference of, uh, of the military and of the Veterans Health Administration of the VA in the U.S. Uh, and so all of that is to say that uh, the way that folks talked about these, in the ways that folks talked about these deaths, um, they, they pointed not so much to the horrors of uh, the battlefield or to particular instances or experiences of violence, um, but rather to an entire system that by its very nature, uh, by, by, the, by fact of what it's designed to do, deliberately exposes soldiers to harm on a routine and regular and large-scale basis, and then in the aftermath of that harm, from the perspective of, of how these folks talk about suicide, fails to care for them. Uh, and this is a system, again, that I want to emphasize is driven by macro-level policy decisions about how to wage war and how to exercise military force. Um, 
Now, a, a kind of uh, additional painful uh, irony that was frequently associated with these stories um, is that uh, military responses to the perceived risk of suicide or to behaviors that were regarded as, uh, as self-harming frequently seemed to soldiers and their loved ones and care providers and advocates to be focused more on controlling or even punishing soldiers who appeared to be at risk rather than helping or supporting them. Uh, and the, the, I could tell a bunch of stories about this, but uh, to keep it brief, you know, jokes or exasperated or sarcastic remarks about suicide or self-harm, um, minor uh, instances like failing to show up for, uh, for formation or things like that, these were things that, that could be met with what soldiers themselves experienced as severe official overreaction even to the point of sort of being punitive. Um, at the same time, as folks in these situations were also well aware of many instances in which people seeking help were not able to, uh, to get it, uh, or in which they even found themselves targeted for removal, for separation from the ranks, um, and thereby separation from, the, from what medical and psychiatric support they would have had access to in a military setting. Uh, and so all of this is just to say that a frequent theme that, that runs through these stories also is that caring for uh, suicidal soldiers in a disciplinary institution like the military um, often comes to look simply like controlling them or making them into a problem that is no longer the, ar the, the army's or the military's responsibility. Uh, and I'll conclude just by remarking on the fact that uh, a similar dynamic also exists in uh, in uh, the broader American culture, in the kind of broader uh, civilian and lay discourse uh, that exists around uh, military and also veteran suicide in the U.S. Um, there, in the U.S., this particular topic has become uh, a sort of catch-all or proxy for talking about uh, a huge range of different uh, uh, challenges that, that anyone who is familiar with veterans' issues knows that, uh, uh, and again, uh, Ben alluded to this a moment ago, knows that many veterans may find themselves struggling uh, with at one point or another, whether it has to do with strained relationships or, um, uh, or uh, actual psychological challenges uh, or difficulty adjustment or what have you. That uh, a kind of um, uh, an urgent attention to suicide in the U.S. has come to make it serve as a kind of reductive proxy for uh, this vast range of different concerns. Um, and suicide is uh, undoubtedly a tremendously important and urgent issue. Uh, but a thing I want to emphasize here is that certain ways of talking about it seem to suggest or seem to have the effect that this broader host of issues only matters to the extent that soldiers and veterans stay alive not to the extent that those lives are healthy and flourishing. And I'll leave you all with the words of a Veterans Health Administration social worker who I know from, uh, from my research, uh, who, when we were talking about this topic uh, a couple of years ago, uh, remarked to me that to the extent that suicide intervention, when it happens on an individual basis, uh, it, uh, to the extent that suicide intervention is an acute and crisis-driven and short-lived task, it is actually relatively easy to do. It's relatively easy to, uh, when this uh, opportunity and circumstances present themselves, to interrupt in the immediate uh, circumstances of an individual um, suicide crisis. Uh, this is, again, the, the perspective of an experienced clinician saying this. Uh, but what he said to me was that, quote, it's all the other stuff that's really hard. Everything else that brought that person to that point, uh, everything else that, uh, that is still going to be waiting for them in the wake of a crisis, everything that will still be there, all of these, uh, these structural features and enduring factors that will still be there uh, to afflict other people, uh, even as, this, uh, you know, as, as one or another um, individual case sort of moves along. And just to return to my sort of opening uh, assertion about the importance of story, uh, the, the importance of, of the stories we tell about war, uh, I would argue that we need stories that do not leave uh, these hard parts, the, the, the stuff that my colleague, my friend was saying, um, uh, that is the, the stuff that's really hard. We need stories that do not leave these hard parts out and that oblige us to reckon with them. Uh, and I'll conclude there for now. Thank you. 
Hi, everyone. And uh, again, thank you to Megan for organising the panel and uh, to the other panel members. Um, so my name's Shane Greentree. I am the National Psychology Services Director at Soldier On. Um, for those, I'll just touch briefly on uh, what Soldier is and what we do, Soldier On is as an organisation and what we aim to do. Um, and I will just preface this as this is from our, um, from our clinical experience and what we see in um, people that, that we work with as, as an organisation. Um, so it, it may be a little different. Um, so Soldron's an organisation that started in 2012 and currently provides a range of services to co contemporary veterans and their families in nine locations around Australia. Um, connection is really at the core of um, what we do and this ranges from organising coffee catch-ups in the community, family weekends away, we have sports recovery programs, um, a dedicated education and employment service and also uh, our clinical counselling services. Um, we attempt to provide entry points um, along the spectrum of people's needs um, to act as from prevention and early intervention through to our more acute services. Um, so Soldron's mission is to work side by side with those who serve and protect um, Australia, their families, um, by helping them to secure their future. Um, obviously within that mission, um, we want to address and help prevent veteran suicide. Uh, within our psychology services nationally, um, we see a range of presentations um, and ha have a, a mix of men and women from all three services from within the ADF, um, and that includes both current and former serving. Uh, Trauma-related presentations would be the most common um, that we work with, but we also see um, comorbid depression, anxiety, um, substance misuse issues. Um, we do work with people who may be experiencing chronic suicidal ideation um, and we, whilst working with the individual, uh, we also work with their family um, and treating team and community as part of that intervention and safety planning when possible. Um, so in order to address the question put to the panel um, this evening, um, I thought it would actually be helpful from the clinical um, experience to think about or talk about the, uh, the things that people tell us um, that help actually keep them alive and keep them safe. Um, so when conducting um, fairly routine risk assessments, most commonly things such as family, and that includes um, military family, uh, community, spirituality and religion, and having a sense of belonging and purpose. Um, uh, these are the things that people tell us and rate as being important um, as to what helps keep them alive. Um, and across these factors, we really see connection uh, as being a common theme. Um, so it's definitely something that we consider in treatment and safety planning. Um, and finding, that's finding ways to help connect um, and people to connect and find purpose. So our so, so interventions um, are not solely focused on diagnosis and symptom reduction, although those, those things are important. Um, we need to take a holistic um, approach that encompasses multiple aspects of the person's life. Um, we do so in taking a developmental perspective, um, considering pre and post service as well as um, their service related um, experiences. Um, so. Uh, looking across the lifespan. Often people will come into to, uh, our treatment service um, having had uh, traumatic experiences or they may also already come with a diagnosis of, of PTSD, but consistent with what others have said, um, this isn't necessarily or even often related to combat um, or operation. We see people with a diagnosis of PTSD um, as a result of a number of potentially traumatic experiences or events um, that can span across their life lives lifespan um, and being service and non-service related. Another component that um, we're beginning to understand more really occurs um, is moral injury and this is a, a idea that a moral injury occurs when one experiences an act either through witnessing or participating in um, that conflicts with or violates a core moral value um, or deeply held belief. Uh, this is commonly associated with deep feelings of guilt and shame um, and, and standard PTSD interventions uh, or clinical interventions generally have only really started to consider this um, concept um, in terms of treatment. Moral injury may impact a person's worldview and contribute to their struggles connecting with their family and community more broadly and have a sense of not fitting in or having their ideas of right and wrong um, challenged so deeply that can lead to a sense of isolation. Uh, uh, already uh, touched on by Ben, but in, in we focus significantly on, on the transition process as well and see that this is a clearly a high-risk period for people. Um, 
what we see as having an impact on people's functioning and what they tell us, um, particularly those um, being involuntarily discharged. Uh, this is a major upheaval and period of adjustment. Um, and they will likely be discharging from the service with physical and psychological injuries, and at the same time losing many of the things that previously um, have been protective, their sense of connection um, and purpose. Um, many talk about their time in the military as having had a ready-made family, um, and tr transitioning out, um, for some, may be experienced as a major loss or even uh, a sense of abandonment. Uh, some feel like they have been thrown on the scrap heap and that their service has been for nothing. Um, they're then faced with it reintegrating into civilian life, not by choice, um, and may need to, to relocate and struggle finding uh, employment and purpose. Um, so, as already discussed by others, a number of risk factors that are known within the literature, but what do we see in practice? Um, so, thankfully, being in a, a treatment and um, Thankfully, being in treatment and connected to supports are seen as protective factors, and suicide uh, is relatively a rare event for the people that are accessing our, our, our services. And so when we think of risk assessment, um, there are problems uh, identified with the, the way that we classify risk from low to high um, and the way that we respond. Um, it's been shown not to be much value in being predictive of those who will end up uh, completing suicide. So one of the things that we want to look at is what is getting in the way of people accessing the services and help um, that, that they need to keep safe. So access to evidence-based practices um, that are offered by appropriately trained professionals that understand the military context and veteran experience um, in lim is limited. Uh, particularly in Australia, with its vast geography, this becomes a challenge. Um, of those transitioning out of uh, military service um, that are likely meeting a mental health condition, only 25% of those um, end up accessing evidence-based care. Um, there's also uh, uh, evidence of high dropout rates uh, for treatment um, from the treatment protocols for veterans um, in Australia and also internationally as well. So we need to look at access and acceptability of interventions. Um, a couple of other points that um, stigma regarding mental health is something that the whole community um, deals with. However, when we consider the veteran's um, experience, this seems to be amplified. Um, it's commonly reported uh, that concerns about impact on career, fear of persecution, and not wanting to look weak um, affect people's willingness to seek help. The response um, to risk by military can be seen as overly restrictive and at times inconsistent with international best practice standards. Um, and military members report to us being seeing this um, as being punitive rather than, than being supportive. Um, and numerous examples of members being asked repeatedly about suicide risk when it doesn't seem evident, but it's become policy. Um, and organisational culture, so, so being tough and, and needing to suck it up might be helpful and necessary in an operational conte context, but then unhelpful terms of accessing timely support when people are no longer in those environments. Um, we hear evidence of of bullying harassment um, or people coming forward um, but being dismissed or not feeling heard um, and people then wit also witnessing that, reducing the likelihood of people coming forward in the future. Um, one other aspect I want to touch on that's not often discussed and I think this comes within the, the point of accessing support and what, what are the barriers. Um, is this idea of the warrior or hero narrative that permeates the community um, and puts servicemen and women in a position of being somewhat superhuman. Um, I think we really need to consider how we honour our servicemen and women and the language we use, um, which is absolutely important. But uh, the, the stories that we hear is that there's a very um, large gap between this idea of being a hero um, and feeling worthless and having your world crumble around you and that getting in the way of how can I come forward and acknowledge this when I'm, I'm a hero or a warrior. Um, so just being mindful of, about how we honour those that, that serve and, and protect is, is something that I think we, we need to have as part of that conversation. So I'll leave it there. Hi everyone, I'm Jackie Dent. I'll be moderating a brief discussion this evening. Uh, a, a common theme that came up on the panel was the issue of military culture. And if you read, um, there's been a number of reports done in the United States um, about the issue of military suicide, as well as here in Australia, there's been Senate inquiries, 
um, a number of recommendations and a common theme that comes out in these reports is that we need to change the military culture. Um, ben, I'd be interested in your sort of take on this with the ADF because, you know, militaries have to be tough. Um, and, you know, how can someone, most of us in our workplaces, you know, there's so much stigma around having a mental illness. Um, I, you know, I would never go forward at work and say I've got some, uh, you know, a mental problem. Like, how, how do people do it in the military? How can you change the culture where people can go forward and say they're struggling? Yeah, I think there's, um, it's almost intractable at some level, um, and I don't have a, a, you know, a magic idea about how to fix that, but uh, I think we have to recognise that the military is a very closed institution. It's command and control, it's very hierarchical, it's regimented. Um, and that, um, you know, is for the purpose of, uh, you know, adhering to the chain of command and passage of information and maintaining unit cohesion, those sorts of things, you know, all that sort of military talk. Um, for some reason, uh, over time, over history, uh, people have, in the military have associated that with um, uh, punitive kind of responses to training, uh, punitive responses to... Uh, people speaking up. So um, we see this in all these reports, you know, that uh, the institution doesn't, um, uh, isn't, doesn't make it easy for people to, re to report things. Uh, when people do report things, they're often uh, pilloried or uh, rejected. Um, so the, I think the question for me is to what extent do we, uh, it, does, it, does hard, it does sit around that question of, uh, you know, um, it's a hard job and that people have to have some level of resilience and ability to be able to operate in those kind of conditions. But uh, the question is, do we need those sort of traditional type of hazing, bastardisation, fagging kind of activities which uh, tend to uh, result in abuse, which do result in abuse? And um, do we need to, um, <coughs> and and certainly the military justice, uh, the, the Senate inquiry into the effectiveness of the military justice system back in 2005 said this, that um, we have to uh, have find ways of um, improving people's redress of grievance. I think the over, there's one overarching thing that comes out of those inquiries to me, and it's the question of independent scrutiny. Um, the military is a closed institution, it tends to run things in an in-house, and uh, that means that it doesn't always uh, have a, what we call maybe a negative feedback loop, a way of critiquing itself. So uh, there are ways of doing that, and uh, one, response, one, one suggestion is something called the, administrative, uh, the ADF Administrative Review Board, which would be redress of grievance outside of the chain of command. That may be one way of breaking that kind of in-house sort of culture. Mm. Um, Megan, you've studied, obviously, um, you're a professor of gender and war. I mean, how does masculinity culture impact on women's, women's service, women and their, their problems that they have in the military? Yeah, I think um, women have some particular vulnerabilities. So one of the um, issues that I missed in my talk because I was feeling a bit nervous um, is <laughs> military sexual trauma which is a major issue both in the Australian Defence Forces and in the US military, many militaries actually. Um, women are, who serve are very likely to experience military sexual trauma, including from uh, assaults from fellow service members. We know that those women who experience military sexual trauma are very likely to also experience PTSD and other health-related issues. So they're vulnerable in that sense, and they're also vulnerable in the sense that they are already discriminated against. So women who are in the defense forces or in uh, the US military already feel like they have to prove themselves to prove that they're tough. So that may mean they're less likely to come forward if they're struggling with a particular issue. Um, so you kind of have those two different factors, I think, that affect m women in particular. I mean, another theme that came up in the talks, I thought, was this idea of the stories that we tell about war. And um, I think, Ken, with your work, you've um, made um, some interesting observations about PTSD. We have a perception now that any person that goes to war comes back with PTSD. It's like a blanket assessment. It's, you know, whenever we read a story about a soldier, it's always like PTSD. Uh, is, that a, is, that a, is that a problem? I mean, do we need to sort of change this narrative about war? Yeah, so uh, PTSD is a is interesting as a a, uh, a psychiatric diagnosis because its its very existence as a diagnostic label is tied up with war and veterans. Uh, it it came into existence as an official clinical diagnosis driven by a number of different factors uh, through the the 60s and 70s in the United States. Um, 
but uh, one of those major factors was a whole <laughs> series of, uh, of, of kinds of distress that uh, U.S. veterans of the, the U.S. war in Vietnam were experiencing but not able to, uh, to get treatment or disability compensation for from the military or, um, uh, or Veterans Health Administration. And it was uh, thanks in part to those veterans and their clinician advocates that we have PTSD as a, uh, as a, a now uh, essentially sort of generic and inclusive uh, psychiatric diagnosis in the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and the, the International, International Classification of Diseases. Um, and uh, uh, one of the... Uh, but the, the, like, so if we if we think about this, the, the fact that it's a um, it's a psychiatric diagnosis, um, that's a that's a clinical label. Like its point is to identify the um, uh, the underlying pathology associated with a set of symptoms and to point to a course of treatment that is likely to work for an individual. It is completely insufficient as a kind of cultural and societal explanation for what kinds of things a person undergoes. Um, uh, uh, through the more general experience of being enmeshed in a military institution, participating in war violence, and uh, and dealing with the um, the the challenges of uh, either return from deployment or a separation from service, it's not to say that they're separate from one another, but that that one category, uh, this very narrow clinical category on its own, is asked to do a lot of sort of bigger um, cultural work. Um, and uh, yeah, and in a in a society in which uh, in which mental illness is so strongly associated with stigma and placed into these these narratives of kind of um, uh, threat to others and threat to uh, to social order, um, it's it's absolutely a, a problem because it kind of it muddies the picture of what veterans' actual mental health needs and challenges might be, um, but it also. Uh, it also takes something that is a clinical category and uses it to talk about a vast array of social and cultural and interpersonal uh, phenomena. Mm. Ken, you know, um, uh, in previous uh, conflicts, um, PTSD uh, has been known as shell shock or other names like neurasthenia or things been traced back to um, childhood development things or family issues. You know, really marked by a sort of resistance by the state to look after the soldiers, you would think. Uh, what, why do you think it's become so um, uh, widely used now and so, and so accepted that it's, uh, it's got a very different status uh, mm -hmm. than after these conflicts than after Vietnam? Sure, yeah. Well, so, uh, I mean, one, one way of answering that question is to look at the kinds of social and political work that the diagnosis does. Uh, and so actually a couple of um, uh, uh, anthropologists who are, who are also psychiatrists, uh, Didier Fassan and Richard Rechtman, uh, have advanced uh, an argument that I find compelling and useful to think with um, on this question, uh, where they, uh, when they talk about the, the history of this particular diagnosis and why it emerged when it did, one of the things that they suggest about it is that it had a kind of broad social and political appeal as it was introduced. So for veterans and their clinician advocates, it provided a way to access healthcare and resources. Um, and for an American public that had witnessed uh, the war in Vietnam uh, on TV and heard and seen accounts of American soldiers um, being involved in, uh, in atrocities and, and terrible acts of violence in that war, it provided an explanation that made it possible uh, for people to sort of condemn uh, the war without having to condemn individual soldiers for their participation in it because uh, the, the, the toll of those acts on individuals can also be recognized. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but Fassan and Reckman, the, the scholars who advanced this argument, um, also point out that one of the things that happens here is that all of the kind of public uh, ambivalence about the politics of that war and about macro-scale policy decisions about how violence was used and how soldiers and veterans were treated just becomes sort of swallowed up by this individualized clinical category, uh, by, by a diagnosis that describes an individual set of symptoms and experiences that are ostensibly detached from politics. And that it has, a, uh, as, even as it is an incredibly valuable resource for people to be able to 
uh, understand and make sense of their own experiences and gain access to healthcare and compensation. Uh, it also does this kind of this political work of of uh, understanding the major consequence of war to be a sort of depoliticized um, uh, uh, psychological condition rather than a set of moral and ethical questions that uh, society as a whole um, potentially uh, ought to grapple with. I mean, do you see with some of the um, service pe people that you deal with um, some of the pressure that they they should have PTSD? Like some people might come back from war okay or... Um. I don't think we, well, we see people in a clinical setting, um, so I, I, it's a very small portion um, of, of the veteran population, so I just want to make that point as well. Um, really, the, the picture that we see uh, is more likely that the, the individual might be questioning whether what they've gone through is bad enough. Um, so it's rating, I, you know, I, there's a, a sense of guilt for, for not having coped with um, something because if, and it goes to that narrative about being the, the combatant and, and on the front line, if they, they haven't experienced that um, or they know that people have and, and, and haven't. So there's a lot of com comparison. Um, so it's uh, not so much that they e expect to, but if, and again, fr from the clinical experience, it's more that um, there's guilt that they and shame around, I've developed these symptoms um, through what would very clearly, from a clinical perspective and an understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, be a traumatic experience. But uh, uh, I think for some, the, the understanding of what constitutes a traumatic experience is um, focused on the act or incident rather than the, the response. A trauma response is something that happens internally. Um, yeah, to an overwhelming situation. So that, that can be any sort of situation. Mm -hmm. We need to wrap up now. Um, any other final comments from the panel? Well, I think we're out of time for final comments, but mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure and an honour to share the um, time with you, and thank you very much for being here and for your wonderful questions. So please join me in thanking our panellists. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.